Welcome to a Northern Wine Odyssey podcast, part of the Cork Report Podcast Network. My name is Paul Brady from the Hudson Valley, and my co-host is on the other side of the pond in London, England, Dan Belmont. What's good? Hey, everybody. How we doing? We've also got uh, two very special guests with us today, Christy Frank of Copake Wine in Copake, also in the Hudson Valley, as well as a journalist at large. Christy, where are you joining us from? Right now, New York City, right across from the 92nd Street Y. Very cool. And also winemaker Ian Berry uh, of Berry Family Cellars, 680 Cellars in Buttonwood Grove, uh, joining us from the Finger Lakes, I presume, Ian. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I'm in my office in uh, beautiful Ovid, New York, on the west side of Cayuga Lake. Right on. Uh, Before we get into today's topic, curious... uh, what everybody's been up to, little roundtable. Uh, Christy, why don't you start? What's What's been going on? Oh, gosh. Well, the other thing I do is I have a canned cocktail because why not? So <laughs> we're, we're deep in the process of about to launch our second flavor. So that's been kind of consuming me a little bit um, lately. One of the things. Yes. Yeah, so your first canned cocktail, which is delicious, uh, is a bourbon and cola. Uh, and uh, you're working with... Um, New York State ingredients. So what what's what's coming up? Can you tell us? Yeah, so it's called Hamlet Hound. And the first one, as you said, was bourbon and cola. And the second one is rye and ginger. And it was canned last week. So very soon I will have I will be making the rounds. Okay. Very cool. Uh, Ian, what uh, I mean, I guess uh, there's a little thing called harvest that uh, <laughs> is either still going on or maybe just wrapped. But have you fi- uh, been finding some time to like, drink some beer at the end of the day oh yeah this um this harvest is is winding down but it really is kind of a harvest that never felt like it fully picked up steam um it crop levels were just way low this year and i've got great help so um it was i think in my 25 years of making wine i feel like it was kind of like the most mellow harvest quality is great Quantity is down. We've still got some fermentations uh, bubbling away, but things are kind of starting to come to a to a close. And we've got some apostamento Cabernet Franc drying in our um, in our drying room for six eighty cellars, and that'll be the last thing we we process this year. So this is a harvest winemakers love, grape growers not so much. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, although I mean, quality is good, so everybody should be really happy about that. I mean, I think there's really great great flavors. Um, just not enough grapes to go around. All right. Well, yeah, the little samples that I've tasted here and there have, have been quite good. So, uh, yeah, I can corroborate the quality of the vintage. Uh, Dan, uh, what's going on over, I mean, a lot's going on where you live. You guys got a prime minister yet? Yeah. Uh, yes, we do. We got uh, Rishi Sunak as, uh, as our new man on the uh, on the podium. Uh, we'll see what how long like it lasts. <laughs> He's actually a teetotaler. A teetotaler. He does not drink. Ah, so is ours. Okay. It's, a, yeah. it's like a thing now. Yeah. Um, we'll see how that actually works for the alcohol trade reform that we're all hoping for. But uh, but yeah, otherwise, it's been a good day. I started out um, at 67 Paul Mall this morning, uh, uh, private members club, nice. uh, uh, all focused on wine. Yeah, beautiful spot. And uh, for a trade tasting, uh, one of my suppliers showing uh, their Rhone M Premier 2021 vintage. Uh, so some really uh, spectacular producers in the room. I got to meet some producers today, uh, and I'm really excited about this vintage. The wines, um, white wines, really kind of uh, punchy uh, and uh, and bright. And then your your red wines are, are uh, uh, quite soft. I thought the last kind of two vintages, 2020, 2019, uh, were were very big and structured and muscular, and and uh, just a lot of really really lovely soft wines. And so uh, I'm going to put together a little wish list and then uh, we'll see those wines after they end up in bottle next year. Very cool. Uh, yeah, that is an extraordinary venue. I was there one time and uh, they uh, th- the list is quite cool. It's not maybe what you th- might think it is. You know, in addition to all the collectory stuff, it is a pretty broad list with like cool stuff from the US, which, you know, you don't see that often over in Europe, especially at those like epic wine list type temples yeah it's i mean it's a, it's a fantastic list lots of uh lots of you know little little hidden hidden gems and uh yeah a little something for everybody for sure uh i've been to the members club a few times i'm not a member it's uh 
bit too pricey for me, but uh, but it is a it is a fun place to go and drink wine, no doubt about it. They have this really cool thing, and I want to like reverse engineer it for for my brick and mortar someday. But they basically have a a waterless wine chiller and they basically um it's like a vat of aluminum pebbles that they just fan cool but the properties of these aluminum pebbles allow the temperature to drop quite cold and so they they can chill a bottle of champagne down to six degrees celsius with without any water and no ice and so it's it's uh it keeps the labels in in pristine condition uh that looks really cool too well without uh further ado why don't i uh tell you all my hot take and uh, we'll get right into it. And Dan has promised to uh, jump in as moderator when need be. So I don't get too carried away. He'll cut my mic Bill O'Reilly style. Um, should, should, uh, should Christy and I, you know, get too carried away. Um, okay. So a, a, a combination of different events, media harvest, things like that got me thinking um, about this subject in particular. So um, talking a bit about hybrid grapes today and what I put to you guys was kind of simply that I think we're, we're getting it wrong or we're, we're doing it wrong. So uh, I certainly want to unpack that with you all. Hybrid grapes right now in any sort of whatever the dominant discourse is for them seems to me to exist primarily in the natural wine leaning circle in terms of any sort of fine wine fashionable identity right now. That's where I see seem to, to hear about them the most. It seems that drinkers in that circle uh, know a little bit, little bit about them. And I, I, I don't really see it coming up as a topic in sort of other fine wine circles uh, in, in any major metropolitan area, of course, you know, when you're within the ecosystem of a region like the Finger Lakes or, or the Hudson Valley or, or Vermont or Canada or, or, or other places, there's certainly always been a local understanding of them. But when it comes to anything sort of mainstream, what I hear the most is from the natural wine circle. Christy, would you agree with that? I do don't know. I mean, just in the context of the natural, you hear the natural wine people talking about hybrids, but nobody else talking about hybrids? Pretty much. Yeah. When it comes to sort of fine wine circles that dominate maybe the the media or just the, you know, the megaphone. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not hearing about them from like, I guess we should sort of identify what are the other wine circles. I mean, there's sort of a fine wine circle of trade, right? Whether it's people in distribution or retail or restaurants, you know, you, you don't hear about like people studying for sommelier exams talking about testable hybrid grapes. Well, that's because they're not testable. Because <laughs> right. they're not, a, but, but I mean, I guess, so let's say if we're talking, if we're talking about Napa, if we're like, let's talk, we're in a Napa circle. You're not talking about hybrids because that's going to, even though perhaps you should, that's going to devastate your- I was going to say not yet. Your marketing. But I mean, even like if you think about Bordeaux, um, there's been talk about new grapes, and I'm, I think those are hybrids that are sort of allowed. Um, there was a story that was in the New York Times about a couple, this was a while back, about like how hybrids are starting to be allowed in France. So I think, I don't know if I agree with that. I think natural wine is talking about it the most. Um because okay, that's what I wanted. That's all I yeah, need. Yeah. They're talking about it the most. I'll take it. Okay, moving on. You're going to force us into a corner here. You're going to force us into a corner. No further questions, Christy. No further questions. <laughs> For the sake of this conversation, let's, let's live with that. Okay. They're talking about it the most. Um, so... The reason I, I think that they're talking about it the most is, well, one reason is because in theory, these grapes are supposed to be, uh, I don't want to say easier to farm, but farmable with a uh, less of a synthetic spray program, meaning that we can, we can farm these grapes more sustainable in, in certain climates. And that uh, sort of better farming or more sustainable farming lends itself to producing uh, wines in a, in a low intervention style. So Ian, I, I, I want to throw a question over to you. Um, 
Could you talk a little bit about the farming of hybrid grapes versus the farming of vinifera grapes, at least in our Atlantic Northeastern climate here? Yeah, I mean, I can I can speak in uh, pretty pretty general terms, you know, um, but I, I they hybrid grapes really do lend themselves more to things like uh, an organic program or a you know biodynamic program. Um, they're a little hardier. Um, they have higher yields. You know, you can get more more tonnage per acre, which makes them kind of appealing for growers. Um, they, you know, the only certified organic vineyard that I've ever worked with grows Cayuga. And in a good year, um, the fruit is, is pristine. Not to say that's... Well, let me, let, me, let me ask a specific question. Sure. Okay, yeah. About sort of organic versus other sustainable or uh, just different methods. When it comes to organic farming, the thing that I hear the most from grape growers in our climate is that they don't like using copper. Now, most of the wines I think that we drink are coming from really excellently farmed vineyards uh, here in New York or throughout the Northeast or Midwest, um, since we're talking about hybrids. And again, I hear growers constantly talking about, well, you know, we don't push it all the way to organic because we don't like using copper. Uh, Ian, could you talk a little bit about using copper and why it is that certain growers don't like to use it, even though it is allowed under at least USDA organic uh, rules. Yeah. I mean, copper is a heavy metal and it accumulates in the soil. It doesn't, it doesn't go away. You know, when you spray copper on your vines, that copper ends up in the soil and it stays in the soil. Um, And it's not good for overall soil health. And, you know, I think that, um, I think for people to just generalize and say organic is better is really not a good way of of looking at the whole thing. Um, There are a lot of uh, non-organic, you know, conventional sprays that we spray that are very, very benign, you know, very safe sprays, um, but they're not certified organic. Personally, I would I would make the argument that they're better for the environment, that they're better for um, the health of the soil, that they're better for the, the lake, you know, that they're better for everything. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that's part of the thing we don't want to talk about that much. Like, you know, it just I think that we're programmed to think organic means better for the earth. And I, I don't think that's always the case personally. So let, I want to shift it over Ian. to Christy again. Or Dan, you got something? Yeah, yeah Ian, uh, copper is also problematic from a labor perspective, from a human perspective too, like your workers spraying copper, like it's not ideal. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, anytime you're the one mixing the chemicals, you're dealing with the most concentrated uh, version of the product, you know, whether it's copper or, or you know, whatever else we might spray. Um, so, I mean, that's that's really the riskiest part of spraying is being the one to mix the chemicals for sure. Well, I, Thank you. I was talking to Ian, your, yep. your, your colleague, Dave Petard, uh, who I gather spends most of his time in the vineyards these days. And he put it to me like this. He's like, look, if I won't let my daughter eat a grape off a vine because of a certain spray, then I'm not going to use that spray. Yep. And, yep. And, and we were talking about copper or he was talking about copper in particular. Sure. Um, so, so I guess... If that, you know, for uh, for our conversation, if, if we're going to let that uh, drive us here today, Christy, why from a sales point of view or from um, a marketing or, or just a, a general um, health when it comes to drinking, why do we still lean so far into this organic brand? I don't. <laughs> I have problems with certified anything. Um, okay. I mean, I think it's it's something that I would rather know what's actually going on in the vineyard than what the stamp is on the bottle. Um, and a question. So to step to step back, if you're working with hybrids and you are farming organically, are the copper needs? Are you spraying as much? Do you need to spray as much if you're working with hybrids as if you're working with with vinifera? 
And Ian, also what might be helpful is actually just um, quickly uh, saying what you're specifically spraying copper for, just for folks that might not know. Yeah, I mean, copper, you know, kind of the the traditional uh, Bordeaux mixture of copper and sulfur really is um, uh, a mildew side, you know, so you're you're spraying against downy mildew, powdery mildew, uh, botrytis, uh, stuff like that in general. And um, I mean, we, you know, the, 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 the vineyards, the, the estate vineyards at Buttonwood Grove and 680, um, you know, are not organically farmed and, you know, they are, they are conventionally sprayed and we don't spray any copper on these vineyards. I mean, you don't need copper when you have, um, you know, other products. I, I'm, I'm not the vineyard manager here, so I can't, you know, list the, the products that we spray off the top of my head. Um, but, but I know that they're very benign. I mean, you know, when you spray something on a, on a vineyard, you have a re-entry interval, meaning like the, the time that's allowed to pass between the spray and, and the time you can go into the vineyard. And most of the fungicides we spray are like, you know, zero to, to 24 hour re-entry interval, which is like pretty, pretty benign. And, and I think even copper has a, has a longer re-entry interval than that. Okay. Thanks for that explanation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I want to come back to 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 this a little bit uh, later. But um, if if right now the at least you know we're we're all four of us. Well, not Dan, but three of us are in New York, and Dan comes from New York and and works a lot with New York wines. Uh, so if if we're hearing the most about hybrid grapes for, from a natural wine circle, and if that circle was I think you know since it was sort of founded on the idea that um, grapes should be farmed very 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 sustainably if not all the way organically or biodynamically um, and that that lends us to being able to have cleaner fruit to then uh, be a bit more hands-off and sort of let mother nature do its thing uh, in the cellar uh, you know that's a good thing I like that I think we all like that but I want to ask about, hybrids in general in this circle because i do see a fair bit of wine and not just made from hybrids also vinifera made from grapes that have not been farmed very sustainably or organically but are still able to exist in this sort of low intervention natural wine circle because of i don't know maybe because of flavor profile or something else that goes into the production and marketing of these wines and, and this, is, this is where my hot take comes in. I think that promoting these grapes and these wines with the marketing message that is they are better for the environment, therefore we're going to only, we're going to make more natural wine with these grapes versus vinifera grapes is, it's an okay message. I'm not against that message and I'm all for good, sound environmental practices and good wines uh, achieved by that. But I think the message that I, I want to talk to you all about and that I think is most important when it comes to hybrids is the is the fact that now that we're making better wines with these grapes, we've got a lot of talent in the vineyards and in the wineries, perhaps more so than we ever have, and more good to excellent wine is being made from these grapes. I think the message should be that these grapes allow us simply to make more good wine. And at the end of the day, I think the answer for these regions is more good wine. And I, I always come back to something that a very well-known uh, sommelier, Madeleine Trafon, who was uh, the first American woman to pass the master sommelier exam in, back in the 1980s, said to me once on the subject of, of New York and also Michigan, that a, a wine region can never be more than emerging with just a few good wines. You need a lot of good wine. You need volume of good wine for a region to be considered great. And the fact that we're making, you know, Ian, you are making, and, and many of your colleagues and our colleagues are making really, really fun and delicious wines with these grapes increases our output of fine wine that we can put into the world, thus holistically bringing places like New York or Canada or or Vermont or wherever else uh, we're celebrating these grapes, it provides us a larger volume of good wine, which is going to bring us to the next level. And I really kind of 
think that we're not hammering that message um, and, and to, to some detriment uh, because <laughs> perhaps the loudest message has been that these grapes are f- better for making natural wine. That's a good thing, but I don't think it's the only thing. And I think the, this message of, uh, of producing more or uh, more fine wine should be of equal or even greater importance. Well, I, um, yeah, I don't disagree yeah, with that, please. but I, I don't think you can, I don't think they're, they're two separate things. One has nothing to do with natural wine. I think the natural wine folks are at least, you know, kind of where the conversation is today are more accepting of flavors and grapes and they're not as bought into it has to be this grape from this region and that style and la 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 so there there's an openness to grapes that don't fit whatever the dominant narrative is there's also um these are grapes that allow you to make wine in wisconsin or vermont or other places so you can expand you know that there's that's an access question where it's it's less expensive to buy land in the finger lakes it's even less expensive to buy land in wisconsin so what are you going to do if you want to actually make wine and own it but i think that argument about more better wine is that's a conversation to be had with people who don't necessarily want to talk about hybrids for whatever reason. So I don't think, I mean, I think it, it's natural wine, the natural wine folks are doing their thing and driving that conversation. But the fact that it's not expanding is that's not a natural wine problem. So I want to ask about uh, a couple of different events that go on. So uh, when I uh, was involved at uh, working for the state for the New York Wine and Grape Foundation, we put on a seminar about hybrids because this was kind of during a time when it, the, the conversation was really getting going. And there, we, we did a number of seminars and there was a lot of pushback from, from certain large stakeholders um, <laughs> in, in the New York industry because they thought the marketing message was not good. And they really only wanted to stay attached and associated with vinifera wines. Now, we did not agree with that. We went forward. We did all of our seminars and whatnot. And to this day, I believe that was the right thing to do. But what I learned from doing those is that it is a very, very sensitive issue. Whether I agree with, uh, I I don't agree that it should be vinifera or, or, you know, nothing. Um, But I do understand and empathize because I learned that it it was very sensitive to, to these growers and wineries that had been really, really working hard to improve their, their vinifera practices and, and uh, know something about a lot of the bad wine that was made for, for many years that perhaps didn't give the best reputation to some of these regions. But now I see things like, uh, and Christy, I, I want to ask you about this. Uh, you know, I see there was an event recently I didn't go. I heard it was wonderful. And it was called ABV, meaning anything but vinifera. Mm-hmm. I don't know the people behind this event. I gather they're great people. But I want to push back on the name because it doesn't seem inclusive. And why do these communities have to be separate? You know, why can't we, again, start bringing this all together? Or I, or I guess, how do we start bringing this all together for a more cohesive message that is just good wine made in very healthy and sustainable ways. I mean, I'll push back. I'll push back on that because I was at the event and it was awesome. And I think, uh, you know, I wasn't in the rooms brainstorming the name, but my sense looking at all of this from like a very, you know, big picture place is there does seem to be within, let's say, the more established segments of the wine industry that it is vinifera, period. It's only vinifera, period, thou shall not talk about flower wine, co-ferments, hybrids, whatever. So the anything but vinifera is kind of a pushback at like, you know, let's put a stake in the ground and let's talk about this whole entire other world that's out there to show how cool it is. And maybe eventually you guys will come join us and have fun too. So like, I don't see the, I don't see that having been there and, and, and having championed these wines and being open to like all the crazy stuff. Um, it doesn't, it, it feels like that's a reaction to um, the establishment and the establishment certainly welcome to come play. Sure. I, I guess I, I don't like both sides of this because <laughs> I, 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 I came up 
through the vinifera side oh, reacting, so did I. <laughs> you know, to the hybrid side gaining traction. And so now I'm seeing the hybrid side gaining traction in these very fashionable circles in places like New York City, leaving out certain wineries and producers who would otherwise maybe really like to be included, who probably produce both, or not probably, who do produce both wines from vinifera grapes and hybrids. And while I understand, Christy, that it's a provocative message, that it, it is meant to be fringe and that it is meant to push back, um, but that in and of itself it is what sort of scarred me from coming through it from the other side. Do you know what I mean? Talk about that more. How did it? So, so having come, having first come through uh, the gauntlet that was vinifera only, vinifera, vinifera, mm-hmm. vinifera. Don't talk about hybrids. We've worked so hard to get here. Blah blah blah. Having come through that, I did not like that feeling. And now I see another fashionable circle with a loud megaphone saying, "Vinifera, get out of here. You did not welcome us. So this this one is not for you." You know, yeah. is there a way I think that's such can, like a no, Ian. Please. I was just going to say, you know, is, <laughs> is there a way that we can, I don't know, just sort of do this all together? You know, I think that 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 group of people who are just like pushing superiority of hybrid grapes is super super niche, like niche. Um, I mean, I don't know. I just I don't think that's like a very loud voice in the yeah. I think we're hearing it, but it's super small. (laughs) Yeah. To kind of, I think a bit of, of maybe credence to Paul, your, your kind of thesis of more good wine. Right. Um, I, I often think about Italy uh, in, in this regard and their more than 1000 different grape varieties grown. And, and yeah, the majority is, is vinifera grape varieties. But, uh, you know, I, I think about my Italian portfolio here, you know, the shelves that I'm going to have stocked with Italian wine. And I'd say probably half, if not more, are grapes that most consumers have never heard of right? Mm-hmm. They're from little farms in Liguria and Lazio and, uh, and, and wherever else. And yes, you're going to have your Nebbiolo and your Sangiovese, no doubt about it, right? And your Gabi and your, you know, you know, whatever. But, you know, I think that because Italy is known for making a whole lot of good wine, people don't necessarily stress about the name of the grape, right? And I think one of the issues that the United States has it is so focused on the name of the grape, right? And so if we could get to a point where there is quality in volume, um, people will start to back away from the, the, the variety name and start to focus on Finger Lakes is home to great winemakers that make great wine from all different kinds of fruit. And that's what I, that's where I want to go. Yeah. And to, to come back to the topic, which is the fact that at the end of the day, I, I don't care what grapes were used as long as more good wine is being made th- that that's all i want to see being celebrated and i mean to be honest like you know i think m- many of us have judged in some wine competitions and and really o- oftentimes the the one is not better than the other especially if you're talking about sort of an east or midwest dominated wine competition it could very well, uh, you know, be the vinifera wines that are giving uh, East Coast wines a, a bad rap or whatever. It's, I don't think it's really ever been hybrid's fault uh, to to sort of dumb it down. But it, is there a way to start to kind of like Christy? Would you see in in less of a like putting the natural wine circle aside? We, we certainly know that there are wineries that don't identify as making uh, or as, as making natural wine or whatever, but are working with hybrids as well. And these are the wines that I, that I often don't see as well represented, perhaps because other circles of fine wine are not as inviting of them. And in that sense, I think you're right. You mentioned earlier that the natural wine circle are pretty open to oddball grapes and oddball wines. So how then do we continue to move forward with this message of let's just make more good wine, but getting that side to be more inclusive? 
Yeah, just to go back quickly to like the the ABV conference, there were there were wineries there that do make a mix of vinifera and hybrid grapes, and they were what they were showcasing were their their ABV their their non vinifera wines um, at this particular, and some were even there was even maybe a little bit of vinifera there too. So it was just a fun, joyous party, um, and I think we're almost perhaps at the point where we're starting to talk less about hybrids as hybrids and more about them as grapes that you just haven't heard of yet. Like much the way that 15 years ago, God, was it 15 years ago, we were talking about Mondeuse and Persan and Jacquere. And these are just grapes that you haven't heard of yet that happen to be very well suited to where they happen to be grown. Um, I mean, I think as the conversation starts to shift from let's call these hybrids to just let's call these grapes. It, it, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it, it becomes, I'm kind of approaching this with that the roadblock that the roadblock and the mental block is on the more tra- I don't want to say traditional, but like the more established grapes needing to kind of come to the party because the party's open. So I don't know yeah. what needs to be done to shift that mindset to be like, it's, it's okay. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And am I wrong in uh, thinking that I recognize that there is uh, right now perhaps uh, a small and Ian, you, you're, you're, not, you're right. It's a small niche, but within this niche, is there like a, you know, Vinifera stay out? We don't have room for you. I, I've personally never heard that sentiment Mm -mm. um but um you know i i've got i I might have a different perspective on hybrids in general just because i've been working with them for 25 years and i've seen this really interesting evolution like when i when i first got into the wine business um when i was in college uh you know at a winery in the hudson valley we were growing marshall foch and leon malo save all blanc uh vignol and vidal and really like our kind of like thought process at that winery was like, how can we market these into this little box that consumers are going to understand, you know? So I can remember like working in the tasting room and, you know, we'd have Foch that we aged in barrels. So it was oaky and we'd tell people, oh, this is kind of our version of a Merlot. Or we'd have like a Saval Vidal blend that we barrel fermented and put through Mallow. And we'd be like, this is our version of a Chardonnay. So it was almost like we were we were using hybrids to kind of like replicate wines mm-hmm. that people were familiar with. Um, and, and not really kind of letting them be their own thing. Thing. You know, we were, we were even the one, the, you know, the winemaking processes were pretty similar to how you would make these conventional wines that people were familiar with. And then, you know, once I left the Hudson Valley and went out, you know, and worked in Oregon and Washington and, and, you know, there's really no hybrids out there. I mean, the tiny, tiny bit of hybrid in, in Oregon that I encountered, but, you know, nothing in Washington. Um, you know, I just kind of had in my mind that vinifera was superior and it really wasn't until about five years ago that like, I think people really started looking at these varieties as their own, their own thing, you know, not just like something that's trying to replicate something or, you know, there's a lot of like hybrid blends in the Finger Lakes that are cheap and sweet and like, Mm -hmm. you know, they fill a niche, you know, they, they sell well to a certain segment of, of the tourists who come through the wineries. But like, you know, in my opinion, they're not great wines, you know, they're just like, um, you know, kind of simple, boring wines. Um, but, you know, I think that just the newer over the last five years, there's kind of been like people just rethinking what to do with hybrids, which I think has been really the most important um, part of this kind of hybrid revolution that's happened lately. And that's um, just to, to jump in on that, like following Deirdre Heaken with La Garagista, who's been working with the Minnesota hybrids for, God, again, I don't want to do the math, 10, 15 years. One of the things that struck me about hearing her talk years, several years ago was when she talked about these grapes are just, if you're, if you're treating them in the winery, like you're treating vinifera, they're not going to work or they're going to, they're not going to be as good as they can be because just structurally the acid profiles are different. The tannin profiles are different. So hearing, 
Ian, hearing you say that, like that definitely jibes with like what I've been seeing and tasting and also hearing from kind of all over the country is once you treat these grapes on their own terms, then they start to really show what they can do. And we get to the point of just having more better wine. Yeah, Christy, you said some like, I think what you Ian, what what you were getting at is like, there was a time when people were trying to, I don't know, make something that tried to taste like Cabernet, but mm-hmm. they were using Baco Noir and calling it Claret or something like that. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and, work. and I think we're see, I think we're seeing a shift away from that, which is a good thing. Uh, and Christy, you mentioned little by little there are people coming into to the industry or becoming wine drinkers who don't know the difference between these grapes, oh. uh, and and they have a total blank slate, right? And uh, I was in a shop the other day and um, the the girl working there, she mentioned really wanting to go and do a harvest with Deirdre Hinken at like a Regista in Vermont. And the more I chatted with her, like Christy, you nailed it. She had no idea that, that these grapes were different. And it was a really, really kind of like uh, ear opening experience to, to chat with her and how Deirdre has become like this incredible figure in the best way out east here uh for a young person entering the industry like looking to someone like that uh again i think is a great thing because you know this was a a nice wine shop there were wines from all over the world and made from all the grapes so this person was not separating any of it and i think that is this like a gen z thing Christy, are you know, or is it an age um, thing? No, 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 no. I don't think it is. I think it's just, you know, everything kind of goes through cycles. Fashion goes through cycles. So we know that these are hybrids because we've, we've studied them and we've been talking about them for years and we've seen them enter the marketplace. But think about back to, I mean, it would have been 2007, 2008 when I first opened the shop. And we were at that point in time, like it was all about Cabernet, Syrah, it was Bordeaux, Burgundy, Napa, Rhone Valley. I mean, clearly for us, Finger Lakes has always been on the radar, but like Germany, it was the big regions and the grapes that come from those regions. And around that time was when all these sort of like new one kind of, you know, one, two page book distributors started to come in. Italy, all of these other regions of Italy that weren't just like Barolo and um, Chianti started to come in and all of these grapes that we'd never heard of started to kind of enter everybody's imagination. And I mean, we, yeah, like we weren't having, it wasn't conversation about is it vinifera, is it non-vinifera, but it was like, well, it's Mondeuse, it's Jacquere. Have you ever heard, like the Jura? Have you ever, like Pulsard, what is this? So it was just, I think we're at a phase in the evolution of wine where where the market is just exploding in terms of new regions and grapes. They just happen to be hybrids. So it, it kind of sounds like what my, my hope and dream here is, which is just to promote the fact that more excellent wine can be made now that we're treating these grapes with respect is sort of happening. Like, are we seeing it before our eyes? Well, yeah. I, I think it's coming around full circle. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, you know, there is historical context to, you know, the the way that the New York State paints its history is there was the era before vinifera and it wasn't all that exciting. There was a lot of bulk grape growing. There was a lot of hybrids that, that were making cheap wine and, you know, they shunned that to promote and push the vinifera into the spotlight. But now it's coming back around full circle. Again, understanding how to utilize this heritage heirloom, whatever you want to call it, fruit that we've worked with for so long and and two, make great wine with it. And so I, I think it's it's all coming together in a good way. I'm I'm surrounded by there's more hybrid wines from New York in my flat, my, my home right now, uh, in, than anywhere else in the United Kingdom. And I could not be more excited about it. Um, we've got a lot of events and webinars and things that are all going to kind of put these out into the world and videos. And, um, I tasted every single one of them before I, I chose to, to bring them over. And, um, I'm, I'm super stoked. I think it's, um, I think we're heading in the right direction. 
Well, and Dan, you're sitting, I mean, you're sitting with a, another super exciting wine region right in your backyard now. And some of the things I have my eyes on over in terms of um, English sparkling wine are, it's also hybrid driven and doing cool things with like pet gnats and just kind of treating them as grapes in their own rights. And it seems like a lot of the excitement is sort of coming from a natural perspective, but it doesn't seem, I mean, it's a different, it's a different market, but I, I see some analogies over there. Do you see, do you see that from your perspective? Absolutely. I mean, I, I just sold the last of my stock, but I was selling a um, red pet nat. Uh, the grape was Triumph, and it was grown biodynamically in Wales. <laughs> uh, yep. I mean, come on, 10 years ago, we're going we're gonna to put that in a sentence? You know, absolutely not. Um, and, uh, and I'll tell you, that wine is, is tasty as all hell. And, um, and so, yeah, there's definitely grape varieties kicking about that you've never heard of. There's, um, there's an MW uh, out here too. He's, he's basically just going around and like finding Crazy Tim Wildman. Old, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lost <laughs> in a field. I, I knew the name of the wine. I couldn't come up with him. But Tim is uh, is making some really cool pet gnats with really random grapes and, I mean, fully being embraced into the London wine scene. Now, I will also say that London's pretty adventurous when it comes to wine. Like, um, you know, there is a very strong push towards let's call it the blanket statement of natural wine. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, that's certainly where he's, he's getting the most traction, but that's also where all the cool kids are hanging out. So, you know, um, it's, it's not a bad place to be. One, one thing that I, I experienced from people coming into the store and to the bar just to buy and wine and drink. Uh, and this, there was, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago or so there was a kind of a, uh, I don't know if it was, a what what type of article you call this but there was a bon appetit story that um was sort of disturbed the force a little bit in the natural wine world and i heard some some follow-up to that and and some of the haters um you know haters are going to hate uh, uh on the natural wine scene like to push back on things like carbonic maceration and pet nat and say things like you know enough is enough with the carbonic enough is enough with the pet nat ian i think you maybe have made more pet nat than any winemaker in the United States. Um, <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and a fair amount of carbonic. Uh, sure. Yeah. As well. And I, I don't like the pushback because I think it's hypocritical. And I think this also sort of disturbs the ability for all of this to work together cohesively. When I, when I think of carbonic maceration or, not even just pet nap, but sparkling wine in general. All this is, is it's technique. It's craft. We're taking grapes and making wine that is desirable by using uh, clever craft. And I don't like the pushback on this because like, what is champagne, but a region that couldn't grow regular vinifera grapes and make excellent still wines so in comes sparkling wine to save the day. Uh, Ian, from a winemaker perspective, do you have any problem taking grapes that might not make a desirable still wine unless you put it through certain technique? Do I have any? Or I guess I don't really understand the question. Like if I had... Well, it seems that certain, like, let's talk about red hybrid grapes for, for, for a moment. It seems like you can make a pretty sessionable, tasty red grape table wine from a hybrid grape. And that carbonic maceration really seems to help with that. Sure. Um, so you're asking... Or in the same sense, adding bubbles. Adding bubbles. I mean, I, I this is shit I do all the time. So <laughs> it's, um, I guess it's... Um, you know, I guess I don't have a problem with that. Um, I mean, that the, I guess... You know, my kind of flagship wine has kind of become my Leon Malo Pet Nat, which I, you know, when I started my Barry Family Sellers brand, I never, never would have guessed that that would become the wine that I'd be known for. But, um, you know, I guess that was a reaction to having these grapes that, um, you know, the grapes that I'd worked with before, I mean, I'd worked with that variety before, but like this particular year, I just felt like the, 
the chemistry wasn't right for me to make it into a red wine. And, you know, I decided to just whole cluster press and, and make Petnat out of the Leon Malo. Um, and it turned out really nice. It was kind of high acid, but in a way that lends itself more to a sparkling wine than it would have a dry red. Um, you know, so I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I guess part of it is just looking at these grape varieties that you're familiar with and trying to trying to put, fit them into a different mold. So, um, yeah, I mean, I have no problem with um, doing different things to, to make it work. Well, I have a hot take on the hot take. I sure. I read that article. Um, and I just did... One of the other things I just did, I just got back from Cornell and I actually did a presentation for 679 young minds about a liquid history of natural wine. And I think that article, I mean, everybody's got a hot take. Everybody's pushing back on things. I think the issue with like carbonic, pet nat, and skin contact wine these days in terms of people pushing back on it is a whole lot of those wines are made to hit a style box. So in many ways, a lot of the sort of natural wine in air quotes that we see is not all that different from Parker wines back in the day, which were made to hit a very specific style. And what is getting lost in a lot of, I guess we could call them commercialized natural wine, although I hate every wine is commercial because we're all trying to make a living. Um, But is that um, they miss they sort of we've lost some of the conversations about farming and technique and all of this stuff, which was when when natural wine the the, the conversations we're having right now kind of go back to like the Beaujolais and Lapierre and that kind of stuff. So what gets missed in the current conversations of that hot take are the things like what Ian was just talking about. Like these are the grapes that I have this year. What am I going to be able to do with them to make the best wine is a much different conversation than I am going to make a carbonic wine or a pet nat regardless of I'm going to do whatever I need to do to this wine to make a pet nat or a carbonic. Um, So like one conversation is rooted in the grapes and the farming, and the other conversation is rooted in the, the marketing box that you're going to put the wine in, too. And that Bon Appetit article, like a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it was people pushing back just to push back, but some of it was pushing back on we've kind of lost the string of the history of what natural wine was, which I thought was kind of a little rich because in many ways Bon Appetit is one of the publications that created this certain idea that natural wine has to be orange wine skin contact wine, pet net, or glue glue carbonic red. That's my hot take. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was, uh, uh, it, it also sort of just kind of reminded me. And, and I love that you made the, the Parker uh, mm-hmm. comparison, Christy, because I mean, yeah, what are we seeing? We're seeing a lot of the same wine. We're seeing flavor scaled uh, uh, essentially, whether back in the day it was to try to make really high alcohol red wines with a lot of Oak, uh, or oxidative orange wine or pet nat, you know, whatever wine with bubbles or carbonic this, carbonic that. Um, so yeah, it is sort of come full circle. And yeah, I mean, I don't know that that, uh, that, that article will, you know, have anybody talking uh, next week or next year uh, no. about that, <laughs> whether, whether it was a intentional takedown piece or not, I don't really know. Um, uh, but uh, it, it did get a lot of people talking and, you know, to sort of wrap as we approach the hour here, um, how, I, I guess like Ian, you know, and Christy and Dan, um, how do you guys think, what, what are, what are smart ways to move forward to cohesively pull this all together uh, to, continue to push a marketing message that is just, you know, in particular, I'm talking about the the East Coast and, and parts of the Midwest as well. Um, how can we just continue to show our best stuff, put our best foot forward, and just promote good wine holistically, vinifera hybrids, Labrusca, new hybrids, new vinifera from all different types of climates and soil types without leaving anyone out? Um, 
I mean, okay, you're talking like you're talking like an industry board member, <laughs> where you can't leave anybody out, where you have to consider all those politics. I, I don't think it needs to be worried about too much. I mean, I think that people can have their part of the fun of it is people having these different conversations. And I mean, part of how we got to where we are now is a lot of people wanted to join that sort of that party of natural wine, of talking about farming, of making the wine that the grapes wanted to be made into, as opposed to contorting the grapes into a certain style. Um, now, I think we're kind of, like we said, full circle. But I think everybody just does what you said. They make the best wine that they want to make, that they want to drink, and that's going and that is as you know good for the planet as possible. I'd like to see that, and then it just it'll just happen, like the the best wines will win and that will be a different a that'll be a different definition for everybody what that best wine is yeah i, I think that's that's exactly it. the bet the best wine will win because i'm not going to talk about a wine just because it's a pet nat i'm going to talk about a wine because it's a delicious mm -hmm. pet nat i'm not going to talk about a hybrid because it's a hybrid i'm going to talk about a hybrid wine because it's a delicious hybrid wine and and so you're going to see if, if you continue to, to focus your conversation in that way you're going to see certain great winemakers rise to the top of the conversation and those winemakers might be concentrated in certain areas and and that's how the region is going to rise up higher in the conversation and you know uh, I I don't feel a responsibility to be so inclusive that we got to take the good and the bad. Whereas, the, like I said, I think there is, we're working towards, there is enough good wine out there that, that there's plenty to talk about. And so, you know, I think about all these, these wines that I'm surrounded with and um, I'm, I'm excited to promote them. I'm excited to, to tell their stories. And, you know, it, it might not be a story about a hybrid grape. It might be a story about a winemaker who made a great wine during a challenging vintage or something like that. You know, I think about all the tasting notes that I write for my website and I only talk about what I think it tells the best story, right? You know, sometimes I'm just talking about the flavors in the wine. Sometimes I'm talking about the people who make it. Sometimes I'm talking about the vineyard whose slope is so intense that you need rock climbing gear to pick the fruit, you know? And I think if you, if you just do it that way, I think that you'll enrich someone's uh, uh, drinking experience um, no matter what it is or how it's made um, and whether it's natural or, or not, because there's room for all of it, you know, with the caveat that we shouldn't treat the planet like crap. <laughs> all right. Well, we've, uh, we've put an hour in almost on this. Uh, yeah. Well, I want final thoughts yeah, yeah. from Ian too. I want to hear. Um, I want to hear the thoughts from the man whose best-selling wine is a pet nat Leon Milo. How wonderful <laughs> is the world that we can say that sentence? <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't. I mean, you know, we're just, you know, what I'm doing with Berry Family Cellars and what I'm doing with 680 Cellars in particular is really just trying to like, uh, you know, I'm really, really lucky in a lot of ways to to, to work for uh, a family who's. Um, uh, really just lets me, uh, do whatever I want with the wine here, um, at 680. Um, but you know, we're, we're just trying to move the, move the story, story forward by, by trying, you know, new techniques, old techniques, um, uh, you know, different vessels and, and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's important that everybody, you know, maybe not put all their eggs in, the basket of uh, making experimental wines for the sake of trying to figure something out to crack a code or something. But I mean, I think that experimentation, especially when it comes to hybrids, um, you know, we've all, it's, it's really only been a few years since we've been rethinking hybrids. And I think that, um, I think there's a lot of things we can do that uh, people just need to keep trying, I think, and, and that'll move the story forward and the quality forward and um, put more good, reasonably priced wine out into the world, which will be good for the, for the region. And um, yeah, I, I've got a, a final question for Ian and Christy. Um, the Cayuga grape, uh, Ian, you make a sparkling wine out of Cayuga. I hear a fair number of grape growers and winemakers talking more and more 
about Cayuga and more plantings going in. I saw that Bloomer Creek has a new planting of Cayuga. And what I've learned is that you can get like eight tons to the acre of Cayuga and some really good wines are being made. Are we about to experience a wave of Cayuga? I, I don't personally think so. I mean, honestly, um, uh, I think Cayuga, you know, it, it, yeah, you can get eight tons to the acre. Um, uh, you can pick it early in the season. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good things about Cayuga. I don't know that, um, you know, frankly, on its own, I don't know that that's the most interesting of the hybrids. You know, I think there's other more aromatic varieties that, um, are a little well, more you make a kick-ass sparkling Cayuga. Well, thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I'm happy with, you know, I'm, I'm happy with it. Sure. Um, but I think, you know, it's still kind of niche. Like, I, I, I think that, you know, w- when we have these conversations, like, we're all so, so invested and so focused on, on the wine world and what, and what we do and what we see. Um, but really, like, the, the public is really what's going to, make the decisions ultimately, you know what I mean? Like we got to make wines that can sell, you know, it's, it is a business. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't even know where I was going with that, that thought. Well, you're right. I mean, the, uh, the ultimate <laughs> megaphone is owned by the, by the masses of people. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I can say that we, you know, at, at Buttonwood Grove, we, we make more pet net every year. I mean, we've almost doubled our pet net production, like we double it every year, basically, because of uh, demands of the market. So, you know, if if Petna is is fizzling as a as a brand, you know, if you look at it as a brand, um, we're we're not seeing that, you know, just anecdotally speaking. Well, <laughs> and how wonderful would it be if instead of drinking twenty six dollar bottles of Italian Pinot Grigio, everybody was drinking $26 bottles of Cayuga Pet Nut from just sure. upstate. I mean, that would yeah, be awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, I like that. That's a subject for another podcast. Well, that's, um, that's like my, uh, you know, I sell, if it's pink and it's sweet, it's going to be Catawba and it's going to be local. Yeah. There you that's, go. That's what yep. I sell. It's not going to be White Zinfandel from California. Yeah. It's a whole other topic. Um, <laughs> What do you guys? Uh, what do you guys got in our final uh, couple minutes here? What do you got to plug? Uh, let's let's go around the table. Dan, what's coming up that's uh, new and exciting for you? Oh goodness, I just uh, partnered with a creative firm here uh, to um, take good wine, good people uh, to the next level. Uh, and so we're going to do a bit of a, a brand refresh, uh, and we're going to get a new website. Uh, and I'm getting some much, much needed marketing help. And so uh, I'm excited. I, I spent a lot of time uh, interviewing uh, different agencies over the last few weeks. And uh, uh, I think I found some great, great partners. And uh, so the next couple months are going to be going to be big. Uh, I'm stoked. And hopefully I'll survive Christmas in the process. <laughs> Congrats. That sounds sweet. Uh, Ian, what do you got that uh, maybe from this harvest that you're excited about? Oh man, I actually, you know, speaking of orange wines, um, I've got a, a skin fermented Riesling that I did in a Cocchio Pesto egg, which is a, like a terracotta concrete um, uh, blend uh, vessel. Uh, that's pretty cool. I don't know. I think of everything in the cellar. I'm pretty excited about that. And um, I'm also excited to be going to Peripheral this weekend in Hudson, although this podcast probably won't come out until after that. So maybe I shouldn't mention that, but peripheral wine fest this weekend cool christy i'll be going to peripheral so i will see you there I'm very excited see you there christy <laughs> um and rolling out hamlet hound rye and ginger i might have some cans in my pockets as i normally do and um going to finally launch my own wine club theoretically perhaps in time for the holidays we'll see nice all right how do we become a, a member of the christy frank wine club uh First, I have to put it together and then you'll be able to, I'll, I will definitely be Instagramming about it and Facebooking about it and all of the social media, uh, blah, blah, blah. All right. We'll look forward to that. On, on the subject of wine clubs, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that our current offering uh, of wine club at Paul Brady Wine are two pet nets made from the Melody Grape, one from Buttonwood Grove, where Ian, you might know something about that. 
Uh, and then the other is uh, the, the Melody Pet Net that we make, uh, that we collaborate with Ben Riccardi on, and we're selling those as a two-pack together. So you can get a, a screaming deal on two Melody Pet Nets, probably the only two Melody Pet Nets that have ever been made, I, I, I would suspect. And then also we got an orange wine in the works too, which um, we're pretty excited about. I just tasted uh, a sample. It has finished fermenting all the way dry and it'll remain in vessels until I believe it goes through mallow. Uh, it's a uh, skin contact Delaware that we're working on with Peter B. Craft over at Anthony Road. So very Fine. excited about that. Thank you everyone. Christy and Ian, as always, uh, great to hear your voices. Have so much fun this weekend at Peripheral. I'm going to try to stop by your shop on Friday anyways. Cool. And uh, my goodness, fall season has been bananas with lunatic leaf peepers. So, oh, that's uh, good. I, it's, <laughs> it's good. Uh, so I wish everybody uh, uh, up here in, in the Finger Lakes and in upstate New York uh, a very happy and healthy fall season as we, as we move into the holidays here. So cheers, everybody. Thanks, Christy, Ian, and Dan. We'll, we'll do it again next week. This is a Northern Wine Odyssey presented by Cork Report Media. Big thanks to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com. Keep fighting the good fight, and we'll see you next time.